Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Long Game with LZ and Leach. Welcome to The Long Game with LZ and Leach from The Recount, where every week we talk about the biggest stories in sports and how they impact culture, politics, and business. I'm the disappointed Lakers fan, Elsie Granderson. And for some reason, I'm in a very pleasant mood. <laughs> I'm Will Leach. I'm a little worried that your pleasant mood is because I'm not in a pleasant mood and you know it. <laughs> I do like seeing you miserable. I'm sorry. I do like seeing you miserable. It's, it cracks me up. Because I'm a cheerful person, right? I'm a generally a cheerful person. So when you have those moments where I am grousing and growling, I feel like they should be cherished and I should be mocked accordingly. <laughs> Before we get into my grousing sports mood, LZ, what is your sports mood? What is my sports mood? Hmm. I really don't want to share it because (laughs) I want to spend all this time talking about you, your Delta situation, going on vacation. I just want to talk about that. So I'll just simply say the Lakers have been trashed recently, but I still have hope. (laughs) Okay. Back to Will. Okay, so I am in Florida, which is all, you know, I mean, honestly, my first problem. I want to reach through your, all your podcast listening devices and let you know that if you are in Florida now, you can leave. You can go. You, you are encouraged <laughs> to do so. I am stuck here, but you can get oh out and be God. free. So I am on a, quote, vacation right now, which is to say every year, my family and I, we go see my wife's father, who has a place here in Jupiter, Florida. Florida, I think it's fair to say it's not my natural environment, but nevertheless, <laughs> I do my best. What my are your boa like They like to see their grandfather. They like to jump in the pool. I get it, whatever. Some people like to uh, have the fear of death from alligators. It's fine. If this Florida is your thing, by all means, be your thing. But we flew out here on Saturday. Our flight was canceled. So we drove all the way here. Our bags, because we had six bags, are scattered throughout the country. So I'm wearing the same thing I've been wearing for 48 hours. My children have been running around naked constantly because why not, right? They're 29 and 27. No, they're not. They're 10 and 7. Uh, So they're running around naked like crazy. I apologize for my audio. My microphone isn't here. I've been wearing the same clothes for 48 hours. And we're First of all, I'm in Florida. So for what it's worth, my sports mood is please get me out of Florida by the next podcast. You have to be the first person in a very long time to be going to Florida around spring break and complaining Mm. before you actually partake in the actual vacation in Florida during spring break. 
This is my general rule about vacations. Andy Rooney, you know, cool hipster Andy Rooney. Yes. Has this great line always talking about like vacations are not better than real life. They're just different. They're not any less stressful. They're not easier. They're just something different, which there's value in that, I suppose, for people that like different things for some reason. But I I feel like my vacation is I would just like to continue to work. And then when my work is done, I'll go hang out with my family and that's fine. Vacations, everything is madness. I'm in a different place. Everything is different. Everything is hard. Also, that place is Florida. My point to you is, LZ, is that I'm going to talk about some sports topics today, and I cannot wait to do so because they have nothing to do with my life or <laughs> me being in Florida or not having any of my stuff or wearing the same clothes I've been wearing for 48 hours or uh, basically anything that's not vacation or travel. That's my sports mood. My sports mood is the equivalent of the way Coach K felt after that shot went in for North Carolina. <laughs> I feel like I've repeated that moment, Groundhog Day style, for 48 hours now. And unlike Coach K, though, I don't deserve this. You deserve it, Coach K, but I don't. Jeez. I'm so sorry, buddy, that you're going <laughs> through okay. this. I, I really have a very negative attitude about this. I should be smiling. I'm, I'm with my family. It's exciting. It will be fun. I'm sure someday we will laugh, probably after I'm dead. And they can you know, all laugh about that time that Daddy had a heart attack in Florida. You know why vacations in America kind of suck? It's because of our view of work in America, right? So we think the ratio should be seven months for every one week of vacation. So you work nonstop and then you think you're supposed to decompress in, a, in <laughs> seven days. And oh, right. by the way, that's including travel right, right. and traveling is stressful. So really it's like five days. It takes you about a day to get into your hotel room. You can't check in until like three or four o'clock. So the truth of the matter is if you go on a week long vacation, you probably don't really start vacationing until Wednesday. And then your <laughs> body gets riddled with anxiety because you realize you only have one day left of vacation before you have to start thinking about going back to work. What we really need is what they do in other parts of the Western world, if you will, mm-hmm. and actually go on holiday. Mm-hmm. And on holiday, you take weeks off because you understand it takes a lot longer to decompress, that you can't get it all out in a long weekend or even in a full week, that you may actually take two weeks before your body actually relaxes and tries to renew and like recalibrate itself. But unfortunately, here in America, we think if you take too many weeks off, you're not being productive. You're being lazy. Get back in there. It's one of the biggest okey-dokes that corporate (laughs) America has tricked us into believing. That the only way to be productive is to work until you die as opposed to have some sort of balance. I totally agree with that, which is to say I believe the ratio, at least for me personally, should be 12 months of work. And no vacation. And that way I don't have to even worry about it. Who needs to decompress? Who needs to live past 53 when my heart explodes in protest? I just uh, turned 50. You've been like three years. You're gonna be fine. You're actually relaxing and having <laughs> vacations. I, that's not you know why just, I love vacations not for me. I love vacations because it's the time of year that I get to eat cleanly and work out. And I know that sounds like some complete and utter bullshit, but life is so stressful at times that you you can go three or four days without working out or you eat a bunch of crap. I like vacations because I go, I'm going to eat cleanly and I'm going to work out at a decent hour and it's going to be 
Nice. <laughs> the one good thing I've done the ship bar is take a seven mile run. That part's true. <laughs> that part is there definitely true. Uh, unfortunately, it's at the clothes I traveled in. Oh my! Are you still wearing the same underwear <laughs> yeah. from that seven mile run? Uh, I will. We oh, is a washing It's oh. been a long. <laughs> I'm just saying. Oh. I don't like vacations. That's <laughs> what I'm trying <laughs> to tell you. Oh. I like routine. Did you at least take them to the rocks by the river to beat them clean first and hang them up with a string? Uh, an alligator will eat me if I get even <laughs> close to rocks by the river. Happy spring break, everyone. <laughs> Happy spring break, my friend. <laughs> okay, LZ, time to move on to our first big topic, our preview of the upcoming Major League Baseball season, which begins Thursday. Freddie hits one in the air to left pretty well. This one is heading back to the wall, and it is in the bullpen gone. That's a home run for Freddie Freeman, and the Dodgers on the board. It's 2-1. to one. Opposite field shot for Freeman. That was the sound of former Atlanta Braves and now Los Angeles Dodgers star Freddie Freeman hitting his first spring training home run for his new team. Freeman, who signed a six-year, $162 million free agent contract with the Dodgers, is one of many star players that changed the dresses during the offseason. And now that most of this very intriguing player movement is settled for the moment, I'm interested in discussing which franchises will now face the most pressure in 2022. Will it be the ones that broke the bank, like the aforementioned Dodgers? Will it be the teams who made lateral moves, such as the Braves, who traded for Matt Olson to replace Freeman? Or... Will it be the clubs who made smaller changes and are instead banking on the talent they already have, like the Yankees, the Angels, and God's gift to baseball and really to humans, the St. Louis Cardinals? LZ, the season starting on Thursday. What is intriguing you the most right now? They start us off. I'm a homer. <laughs> and Understand? there are two places that I feel are home for me. And I'm going to start place number one, being with the Detroit Tigers where I was born and raised and spent the first 18 years of my life. I've kept up with my Tigers, even though I left the city and have been out of the city longer than I was in the city. Mm -hmm. I think I mentioned many times before being a kid with the concession stands and saying, peanuts, peanuts. I love the entire thing. And then we hired AJ Hinch, the cheating, Mm -hmm. lying, Mm -hmm. deceitful AJ Hinch. And it's been hard for me, man. But the reason why I find them to be intriguing in 2022 is because last season, despite finishing with a sub-500 record, by the way, Mm -hmm. it was the best season the Tigers had since 2016. (laughs) That's how awful it has been in Detroit for baseball over the last five years. And A.J. Hinch seemed to be turning them around. We had a productive offseason. We signed Javi Baez. I'm a big fan of his. I was kind of happy that he came to Detroit. And then I remembered that A.J. Hinch was going to be his manager. (laughs) And And so for me, it's intriguing from a personal level because I want to know what is going to motivate me more this season. Having my Tigers get better again. And not being a national embarrassment, I think they won 47% of their games, which was the highest they had since 2016, which is Mm -hmm. awful. Or will it be my hate of A.J. Hinch and the (laughs) fact that he tarnished the sport, but he really didn't even get punished because the year was during the pandemic. And it's like, oh, well, no one's playing. So I guess it works out for everybody. So that's team number one. Okay, well, I I feel like I can help ease your fears about A.J. Hinch. 
his team was stealing signs, which has literally happened since the beginning of baseball history. Now, I understand that everybody got on John Boy's Twitter and were like, oh, no, uh, look what they're doing. They're hitting the trash can with a bat. We're all citizen journalists figuring out this nefarious scheme. But if, and listen, I get it. the Astros are very annoying. They're actually Spurs. called the Asterix. We call them the Houston yeah, like, Asterix in L.A. Like they were hardly likable. But the idea that they did anything different. I don't want to hear any more about these high tech scams that the Astros pulled off. They hit a fucking trash can with a bat. And we're like, oh, assisted my God, by this is so different than it was They were assisted. It wasn't just trash cans arbitrarily being hit. They had a system. The point is, even if you would think that's a horrible scandal, which I clearly don't, the idea that A.J. Hinch was the mastermind, certainly Hinch could have stood up and said, stop well, that's it, my player, point. stop it. Was he the originator? No. But don't give me this sob story about how you were this helpless figure within the <laughs> franchise that had no control. I can dictate when you start, when you don't start. I can dictate pitching rotation. I can dictate if you stay in the game or if I pull you out. But I couldn't influence at all whether or not you were cheating. Stop it. And so that was the part that really irritated me. It wasn't so much the fact that they were stealing signs, though. That's awful. No, <laughs> it was the fact that they were stealing signs while also mm. trying to pretend like, well, no one really knew what was going on. I don't know. <laughs> I agree that they knew what was going on. To be clear, <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. The fact that he did not stand up in the middle of his team succeeding in going to the World Series and call all of his players cheaters and saying, I will not manage all of you cheaters, makes him like every single manager in the history of baseball. (laughs) There's literally never been a manager that says, well, then I don't want to win this way. I quit in the middle of the season when your team's on the way to the World Series. Yeah, like the, he's a middle manager. Managers actually, he are didn't. middle he managers. He didn't do that at all. Actually, he, we we still quote him like he didn't know what was going on too. <laughs> yeah, everybody knows what's going on. Everybody always knows what's going on. Okay, so my team starting off has the most intriguing player, arguably the most two intriguing players in baseball, which is the Los Angeles Angels. You have obviously Shohei Otani, who had a season unlike any other in baseball history last year. A great piece by Ben Lindbergh in The Ringer argued that Otani could actually be better. He actually struggled down the stretch with the bat. He actually struggled at the beginning of the year pitching. He seemed to have clearly figured out the pitching at the end of the year and the hitting at the beginning of the year. If you're able to put those two things together, you could have an even more titanic season than he did last year. The fact that baseball has actually changed rules around Otani, it's actually great. Baseball is always going to be accused of changing rules to make things worse. But the rule they've changed this year is they've made Otani, if he's pitching and he gets pulled from the mound, he gets to stay in as the DH. That's probably not a big deal. It's probably like 15 at-bats a year at most. But it's it's baseball being like, you know what? This thing is cool, and we're going to make sure that people like this cool thing that's happening, which is awesome. So Otani is great. And also, oh, yeah, he's got Mike Trout on his team. They barely played together at all last year. The fact that Trout and Otani at their peak powers, there's a lot of potentially really fun things on the Angels. Their pitching is terrible. They brought in Noah Syndergaard, which sounds exciting, but he's only going to throw like 100 innings this year. The pitching is going to be a major problem again. But, you know, who are the teams at the end of the night when it's late and you're not ready to go to sleep yet? You're like, oh, they're playing? That's who I want to watch. The Angels are absolutely that team for me because of Otani and because of Trout. You know, living in L.A., knowing that we had the best player in the AL, if not in all of baseball, just a short train ride away, and yet... 
I never felt motivated to really see him more than <laughs> once or twice a year. Yeah, yeah. He's not exciting <laughs> and then he had Otani. Otani. That's right, right. And, and I still wasn't that motivated to see them more than once or twice a year. Yeah. And, and it's not because I don't love baseball, because I really do. But the Angels have been so awful over yeah. these last few years, despite all the talent, that I don't even think they're worth a, a train trip just 30 minutes away. <laughs> it's a pleasant so trip. I'm he drops you off that, right there. <laughs> and I still just like, yeah, I'd rather sit in traffic to see the Dodgers. So, <laughs> I get it. I get so, it. I get it. So hopefully the changes that they did make this offseason, they went all in on pitching as, as much as they possibly could have. And sometimes it's bad luck. Sometimes it's a bad farm system. The Angels used to throw money at players who – were long past their prime because they thought the problem was star power or something. Yeah. And it's like, no, it, the problem for your team is the same problem for every team in every sport. Talent. Yeah. And talent that complements other talents. And so I think they're finally figured it out, Will, that you can't just have Mike Trout hit home <laughs> runs and you win games, right. that you actually need everything else. Yeah. And so we'll see if they can take advantage of having two of the greatest players in the yeah. history of the game and not be seen as the team that blew it. You'd hope so. All right, so my second team is actually going to be a Texans team. Mm -hmm. The Rangers, not the Asterix, but the Rangers. Yeah, of course not. Because the Rangers have done something very similar to what the Angels have been accused of doing, which is throwing a whole bunch of money at like one or two positions and thinking you can make them into a winner. Out of all the sports, and I'm including football with the roster of over 50 players, out of all the sports, I think baseball is the one sport where one guy or even two guys really can't right. do much. Right. <laughs> you know? Mike Trout being proof of that. <laughs> Mike Trout being proof of that. Yeah. But God bless the Rangers because yeah. before the lockout, they spent north of half a billion dollars yeah. on only four players. Yeah. <laughs> half a billion dollars, <laughs> Will, on only four players. And so they're saying to baseball and they're saying to all of history, we see what you said about dumping all your money in a handful of players and not having great seasons. And we're going to prove you wrong. <laughs> Good luck. Good luck. It, it's hard not to conjure up when they signed A-Rod, right? They signed A-Rod to that yeah. huge contract. Yeah. Be like, okay, this is going to fix things. And then they were terrible every year, and then they traded him. So uh, we'll they see. they traded him. Yeah. Which I suspect is probably part of the mindset for someone like Corey Seager. This is a very NBA. I, Carmelo famously was the guy that did this. He's like, I'll just get my money, and then I'll let you figure out what to do with me if I'm not working for you anymore. But I'm going to get my money, which is the totally reasonable thing to do. He could have gotten money and still won. Right. That's yeah. the thing that I remember specifically. Carmelo was being pursued by the Chicago Bulls and still had a very healthy Derrick Rose. And they looked like a team that was one player away. And Melo says, give me the bag in New York. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. And now we remember, of course, all those NBA titles that the Knicks won. <laughs> of course, of course. Kermit. Who's your second team, Will? My second team is the Yankees. Speaking of, uh, of big market <laughs> teams falling short in New York City, I think this is the year the Yankees might fall apart a little bit. There's two things going on with the Yankees right now. One is they're weirdly inactive in a way where the rest of baseball is generally active. And part of this is because some of the rules that baseball has tried to put in place to try to have teams like the Yankees not just get everyone the way they used to. Now it's just the Dodgers, I guess. But the Yankees clearly are like a little bit more conservative than they used to be. 
they tried to keep their payroll at a reasonable while still quite high amount. Because of that, they've looked around and seen Carlos Correa, the player that was a perfect fit on the Yankees, other than the fact that he was a part of the Asterix, and the Yankees fans are mad about that. They've seen him go to a team that, frankly, the Yankees could have totally upbid him them very, very easily. They didn't really go get any other pitching. They brought in Josh Donaldson, who is injured all the time. There's a lot of questionable moves. The Yankees were almost a little bit too clever by half in the offseason. I lived in, moved to New York City in 2000 and covered the Yankees pretty regularly throughout, throughout that decade. So I've been following this team for a long time. I don't remember a time I've actually seen Yankees fans as actively irritated with their team as right now. And part of that is because they haven't been to a World Series since 2009, which for a normal team, you're like, okay, well, 2009, that wasn't that long ago. That's pretty cool. But there is a frustration that people have with the Yankees right now, not just because they haven't gone to the World Series, but because the whole Yankees thing is they're supposed to be the Dodgers, right? They're supposed to do what the Dodgers are doing. The Dodgers are acting like the Yankees used to act, which is not just they have a lot of money. They're aggressive. They're like, we're trying to win the championship right now. That's supposed to be the whole Yankees thing. And the fact that they're not doing that, there's a very real possibility the Yankees finish fourth in that division this year and miss the playoffs entirely. I, I think they have been aggressive, honestly. I really just think they've been so derailed by injuries that you can't see the fruits of some of that aggressiveness. Do you think Cashman is long for this world? I don't know. They used to switch that job over, I guess, Spinal Tap drummers would be the the best (laughs) example of this. He's had it for 20 plus years now. So he's obviously got some survival instinct. But I don't know, man. Like, I think you're seeing the Steinbrenner family start to get more involved and start to push a little bit. The Yankees better win this year. I think there's going to be actual ramifications there, which I know ramifications for for billionaires don't usually happen. But I do feel (laughs) like there will be some sort of ramifications this year. All right. My last team, of course, are my Dodgers. And, you know, I've loved this team since the 90s, ever since Spike Lee was wearing all the Brooklyn Dodgers gear, and I wanted to be just like Spike. And so I have been into the Dodgers ever since. Shout out to them for announcing the Sandy Koufax statue. It's been long Mm -hmm. overdue. I absolutely love this team. I said all that to say they're about two shortened postseasons away from being the Braves of the 1990s, where they can scoop up tons and tons of talent have talent, have prestige, have amazing regular seasons, win division titles, and for some reason come up short when it comes to World Series runs. And for those who don't remember (laughs) what those Braves were like when they had three of the best pitchers, regular season pitchers anyway, in their rotation, and for some reason, it was the pitching that seemed to have been the issue. (laughs) Time and time again. And when I think about the Dodgers' struggles, our hitting is amazing. We're breaking records. And yet in the postseason, when I think about the biggest issue, it's the hitting. It's the weirdest thing. So when I say they may be like the version of the Braves today, it's not because of the losing in the postseason. That happens. But it's the thing that you're supposedly really good at People are pointed to as what's falling short in the postseason. It's the bats going cold at the wrong time in the postseason, stranding so many men on base. So I think they're intriguing because this signing of Freeman, to me, because of the way that he has a tendency to come through in these moments, it may turn the tide and prevent them from being the hitting version of the Braves pitching staff in the postseason. That's my hope. 
obviously, I won't get that question answered until the postseason. But they didn't need him for the regular season. That offense was set for the regular season without him. To me, well, that pursuit, that acquisition was about addressing our backs going cold in the postseason. Oh, they need to win one. If they end up the only World Series they win from the era being in the pandemic year, which totally counts. That which counts. series absolutely counts. If that's the only one they get, I think there's no question that will be thought of uh, as disappointing, as great as they've been uh, in this right. era. And uh, my last team, speaking as if we're talking about teams from the heart, as we close this out, is obviously the St. Louis Cardinals. The one good thing about being in Florida is that the Cardinals have had spring training in Jupiter, Florida, and we're going to go see them. <laughs> There's a me smile and, me in and your face. Yeah, there we go. See, I'll go. <laughs> I will go see their 17-year-old rookie league guys play the last game of spring training on Tuesday morning. The Cardinals, of course, I think they're a contender. I think that they could win the NL Central, but more to the point, this is the grand nostalgia tour. This is the last year for mm-hmm. Yadier Molina. It's probably the last year for Adam Wainwright. And, of course, they brought back Albert Pujols. Albert Pujols has been gone since 2011. The last game he played for wow. the Cardinals was in that 2011 World Series. A long time ago, a month and a half before the farting, obnoxious goofball, my oldest son was even born. And now he's like 10 and a half. I'm going to have to talk to him about girls soon or boys or whatever. I'm going to have to talk to him about what's happening to his body very, very soon. That's how long <laughs> Albert Pujols has not been on the card. It's a thing, so, man. It's a thing. I'm not ready. I'm totally not ready. I'm going to have to do it like during a game. Like, boy, that's a hairy situation. Speaking of hair, I think I'm not sure exactly what I, how I'm going to do it yet. But more to the point, the love for people have for pools. My dad goes yeah. to opening day every year. Tickets tripled when pools wow. came back for opening day. Like, he, people are so, so excited. Is he a great player? He's not, though. He was fine for the Dodgers he last year. Fine. They used yeah. him. Yeah, they used him fine. But what it will mean just to see him in a Cardinals uniform, I'm not sure it helps the Cardinals. The Cardinals are right on the edge of the playoffs. They could theoretically, uh, if you use him too much, hurt them. To be able to see Albert Pujols, Adam Wainwright, and Yadier Molina in one last season, they've been together so long. Pujols' rookie year was 2001. He was teammates with Mark McGuire that year. Wow. That was Ichiro's rookie year. Pujols wow. has been around forever. And remember, even at the time, people were like, oh, yeah, he's older than 21. So, like, clearly. Right, exactly. Like I remember that. Yes, for yeah. sure. So I'm very excited about it. It's a very fun season. Starts Thursday. Maybe I'll take my son out to watch the game, and we'll talk about the birds and the bees. Well, I hope you wear a different shirt or something. I bet my laundry, my stuff better be here. Swing by H&M by or something before you do that to your son. Don't go out yeah. there with a seven-day-old T-shirt on. My Pujols jersey is somewhere in America right now. Maybe soon it will make it to where I am. All right, Will, let's go on to our next topic. The next king of the NBA. Shot clock winding down. Another buzzer beater from Embiid. Yes, sir! Carmelo Anthony one-on-one against Jokic. Knocked it away, and Jokic lays it home with the left hand. Onto the Kumbo. Trummins on him. Step back three for the tie. Got it! Got it! Giannis! Ties the game and becomes the Bucks' all-time leading scorer on one stroke. You just heard Philadelphia's Joel Embiid, Denver's Nikolai Jokic, and Milwaukee's Giannis Antetokounmpo wreaking havoc on the NBA, and they've each done so all season long. The three superstars are the top candidates to win this year's league MVP, which will be announced after the regular season concludes this weekend. ESPN.com just ran a straw poll of MVP voters, and interestingly enough, the top seven players in the voting, which is currently led by Jokic, also includes John Morant, Jason Tatum, Luka Doncic, and Devin Booker, 
are all 28 years of age or younger, and three of them are under 25. The next five players ranked 8th through 12th in the poll have been NBA standard bearers for years. Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, LeBron James, and DeMar DeRozan, stars who have all well into their 30s and still great, but it does look like a change in the guard is on the way. Will, who do you think will win the MVP? And out of these emerging stars, who's ready to become the new face of the league? Yeah, it's funny. That question of who the face of the league is always something the NBA seems very obsessed with, right? We are both old enough to remember when it's like, when are people going to start to appreciate LeBron James is the best player in this league, right? <laughs> you always feel like a right. cooler fan when you're like, well, you know, this Giannis character, like he's really good. When are people going to finally appreciate what he's doing? And frankly, I think that reached its apex or nadir, depending on your perspective, with Jokic. Where all of a sudden everyone was like, well, actually, Jokic <laughs> is the most efficient player in the NBA. And anyone that doesn't appreciate that doesn't appreciate true basketball. And you saw a lot of that with Jokic in a way that was like, okay, yeah, I know he's good. But like, is it okay that I like watching John Morant a lot more? Right. And I think that's part of it is who that next really fun player is. And remember, there was a time where LeBron early on, he was obviously a great player, but he was not considered electric the way that Kobe was, for example. Because Kobe was like, I'm taking right. over the game. And LeBron wasn't willing to do that because he was all about distributing the ball. What's interesting about this is all of these young players, they're all efficient, right? <laughs> like some of them are more fun efficient, but it feels like the game has absorbed them all within those constructs. And they're all different players. Like, like Giannis is a guy that, that doesn't really shoot, but Morant's a guy that can drive and go crazy. And you have Jokic doing these weird backward passes. And you got big guys, you've got shooters, you've got small guys. I think it actually speaks to the idea that we don't have to necessarily wait for the old guys to get out of the way. And it felt like that a little bit in previous generations. I feel like Morant in particular, I don't still get a sense that when the Grizzlies are in town, prices go up. People are still like Morant are still kind of sleeping on him a little bit. If you watch basketball all the time, you realize, oh my God, Morant is amazing. Right. Of all these guys, it still feels like if there's a stock that you buy for the next half decade to decade, I still feel like it's Morant. Do you feel he's the MVP? I don't think he's going to. I think his injury recently hurt a little bit. Isn't he like in that Derrick Rose territory in terms of age and years in the league and being considered MVP? I think it may be a year even later than Rose. But of course, Rose, remember that team was really, right. that team was really surprising to come out of nowhere. They actually were ahead of LeBron. And so much of Rose's stuff was contrasting with LeBron, right? This was also right. the time where people were mad at LeBron all the time. And Rose got right. to be like the guy well, he was the true Chicago guy. He was the hometown guy. And he got to co contrast with LeBron. And I think that's another nice thing about this. It felt like all of our MVP discussion in the past felt like a lot of oppo research. Mm -hmm. Rose against LeBron. And well, LeBron went to Miami. If he were really viable, he'd do it by himself like Rose. And now you can actually just kind of look at all these guys and be like, wow, they're all amazing. <laughs> they're all amazing. Right. And it doesn't they're feel... They're all absolutely amazing. And it doesn't feel like denigrating Embiid to say, you know what? I think my MVP is probably Giannis. And which I would argue is a step forward in our narrative discussion of these things. Whereas the past, just like with Rose and LeBron, it became the two of them against each other. And it wasn't just on court stuff. It was what it stood for, the way you tried to play. Now it feels like we're just looking at on court stuff in a, in a positive way. Yeah, I have the MVP going to Embiid. I know for a lot of people, it's Giannis or Jokic because of the statistical way in which you can separate them, right? They can break it down in terms of not just categories that you're appearing in the top 10 or top five in, but also really get to the analytics aspect of it and plus minuses and et cetera. But 
I also think there are other factors that you have to take into account. For the most part, the Milwaukee Bucks, the defending champions, have been stable the entire season, right? So all Giannis needed to do was be Giannis. And not to say that was easy and not to say that that's not impressive. It's incredible. Giannis is impressive. Giannis is incredible. Joel Embiid had to keep his team together when his number two said, fuck it. (laughs) (laughs) And was replaced by notorious fun guy to play with and get along with James Harden. (laughs) Like The MVP isn't supposed to be best player, isn't supposed to be best statistical player. It's the player whose presence on the court and in the locker room puts their team in the best position that season for victory. And I swear, man, when you think about all of the shit surrounding the 76ers and the fact that they're still right there, when the other teams that you're talking about, yeah, they may have had injuries to deal with, but this is beyond injuries. This is about team cohesion. This is about locker room culture. Giannis wasn't asked to deflect questions about Chris Middleton saying, I don't want to be here. (laughs) Joel Embiid had to answer all of the PR shit while trying to not say too much of the wrong things because you actually don't know if Ben Simmons is going to be your teammate or not for a good chunk of the year. And, oh, by the way, I'm being triple teamed because everyone knows I'm getting the ball every single time. (laughs) And you have to stay healthy all year, which he's always had a hard time doing. He's been healthy all year. We've seen the results. We have seen the results. And now he's acclimating, to your point, another teammate in James Harden who has bounced around, comes with his own issues. So my MVP is Joel Embiid who's also doing a great job of keeping pressure on LeBron for that scoring title while also trying to keep his team together. And my new face of the league is John Morant. Yeah. In large part because he benefits from the Steph factor, who benefited from the Derrick Rose factor, who benefited from all the little man's factor, which is people see you as human because you're not as big as the other players. And because they see you as human, they see what you're doing against bigger players as superhuman. And we love seeing superhuman things or superhuman people doing superhuman things. I would argue that Michael Jordan, to a certain degree, took advantage of that or profited from that. Not that he isn't a big guy. He is 6'6". Right. Mm-hmm. But he was in the era of the big men, right? right? So everyone who is supposed to be that good is over seven feet tall and 250 pounds and can beat the crap out of you. And here's this quote-unquote little guy, (laughs) you know, doing all of this against the big guys. And it's silly, you know, because as I said, Jordan is not little by any stretch of imagination, but he looks littler. So you're like going, oh, my God, how can he do this against the Giants? John Morant gets that as well. That block, that two-hand pin on the backboard, if Joel Embiid does that, it's like going, well, of course you're supposed to do that. <laughs> right. But when John does it, who's always had his ridiculous bounce, it looks like he's flying in the air. Yeah. And just like Steph, who's able to score in the pain against all these giants, so many young people see that and they think, maybe I can do that too yeah. because he looks so small. So I would say not that Devin Booker is a big guy. He's not. He just tends not to rely on his athleticism or tend not to have as many highlights athletically as Ja does. And, you know, where you're talking about Luka Doncic or some of the other young players 
It is the combination of his gregarious smile, his look, his energy, and his play that I think more fans are going to gravitate towards. And I think in five years, this is going to be John Morant's league, provided he can stay healthy. I just think of like human beings in the world right now. If I could be transposed to like them for like the next five years, John Morant would be a pretty good choice. I feel like that would... <laughs> he seems like a pretty good choice, man. He's, he's so much fun to watch. And he, he is skilled and fundamentally sound. And I think... Those are the parts of a game that people will start to appreciate after we get over the initial couple of years shock of one, Memphis being better than what a lot of us thought they were going to be. And then also two, him being better than what some people thought they were going to be. Remember, this was supposed to have been Zion's class. (laughs) He was the number one overall draft pick. He was the one blowing up his sneakers at Duke and having people do thought pieces and these long 60-minute pieces on what does it mean to be Zion. He was supposed to have been the one. And maybe because all the attention was on Zion, it was easier for Ja to kind of come into his own. Or maybe Ja was always this underdog. And because he wasn't necessarily someone that was a household name, people overlooked him. But it might have been at the beginning of this tenure supposed to have been Zion's class. But it's John's class. And if no one steps up in a big way, it's going to be his league. R.J. Barrett. R.J. Barrett's coming. Go Knicks! All right, when we return, we're going to discuss Deshaun Watson, Trevor Bauer, and whether pro sports leagues have figured out how to deal with players who are accused of sexual misconduct. The Long Game with L.D. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Okay, LZ, we're back. Deshaun, why, sh- why should you be believed instead of more than 20 women? Um, I can't speak on, on what people, um, opinions are, um, because everyone have their own opinions, but what I can continue to do is tell the truth. And that is, I've never assaulted or disrespected or harassed any woman in my life. Like I said before, I was raised differently. That's not my DNA. That's not my culture. That's not me as a person. And that's not how I was raised. That was new Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson defending himself in a recent press conference after being asked about the many allegations of sexual harassment and assault he has been accused of. Although Watson was cleared by two grand juries of criminal charges, he still faces 22 active civil suits and a possible lengthy NFL suspension for violating its personal conduct policy. The league is currently investigating Watson, but Commissioner Roger Goodell recently said he's not sure when a ruling will be made on Watson's status, and that in the meantime, he's free to engage in team activities. Meanwhile, Trevor Bauer, the star pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers, has been on paid administrative leave since last July after he was accused of sexually assaulting a San Diego woman on two separate occasions. In February, the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office announced that it will not press criminal charges against him 
And since then, Bauer has gone on the offensive, filing defamation lawsuits against Deadspin and also The Athletic and its former reporter Molly Knight for, quote, creating and spreading the false narrative that Mr. Bauer fractured the complainant's skull. Major League Baseball continues to investigate Bauer, whose leave has been extended through April 16th. While he's also likely to be suspended, it's also unclear when any disciplinary action might take place. Elsie, we've got two different star players, two different leagues, many accusations of sexual misconduct, no criminal charges, possible suspensions, and cases that have dragged on now for months and months and months. Are the leagues handling these situations correctly? And if not, what should they be doing differently? I've been thinking about this a lot since we decided to do this as a topic. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not really sure if I landed in a satisfactory place with it. On the one hand, it feels as if both leagues, if not all leagues, are using the criminal justice system as a shield so they don't have to be the ones taking the initiative when it comes to these sort of stories, right? And I understand why. One, the criminal justice system is designed to investigate, to check the accuracy of these type of stories, whereas Major League Baseball is designed to play baseball (laughs) and to monetize the sport, right? So why get ahead of the agency in this country that's designed to investigate the truthfulness of an accusation as opposed to being the league that gets ahead of them, even though what you do is analyze pitch counts for your existence. But I also know that these leagues, before they draft players, investigate them. And so they don't go, oh, well, we are football, so we're just going to trust football and not do any investigation on these draft players. No, they do a thorough investigation of these players before they draft them. They know everything, including their favorite flavored milk, whether strawberry, chocolate, or plain. And so the idea that they can properly or thoroughly investigate a player can make a decision about whether or not to draft them. But when it comes to a criminal investigation, oh, we should let the authorities handle it. We're out of our depth. A little inconsistent. A little inconsistent. And then there's also the, the caveat that you can put someone on suspension while they're going through this without them first being criminally charged. You can take the initiative. Why? Because if you're saying in your mission statements and in your press releases that we take these issues very seriously, then take these issues very seriously. If you are hedging your bets to wait to see what the popo does first before you take these issues very seriously, it seems like you're being more publicly and PR driven than principle driven. And you're a business and you're supposed to consider it all. And I get that. I'm just saying that a lot of us see it and you're not fooling anyone that this okie doke is is not really working the way you think it is. We know why you're employing it because it protects you in a lot of ways and no one wants to punish players who have been falsely accused of things. I get all of that, but it looks more to me like a PR maneuver to give you cover than actually adhering to the principles that you say are important to you. So How are these leagues handling this well? Like a PR crisis as opposed to an issue dealing with human resources. That's how I'm saying that they're dealing with it. What about you? Yeah, I'm reminded of just a couple weeks ago, we had the athletics great Lindsay Jones on, and she talked about how things had changed over the last eight years when Ray Rice happened in the NFL. Because remember, that all started with the NFL initially suspending Rice for two games because he was arrested and because of the incident. 
And then he pled out. And they're like, well, we suspended two games. And then the video came out. And when the video came out, which the NFL first denied that they'd seen and ultimately came out that they had seen it, their two-game suspension looked insanely lenient. And so, therefore, they had to go outside of the legal channels and be the judge and jury themselves because of the public relations backlash because of Ray Rice. It wasn't long before that. People forget this now. Michael Vick, they did not suspend him until he actually pled out. And when he pled, that was when they suspended him. They waited that long. The Rice thing showed them they could not do that anymore and that there was a public relations aspect of it. On one hand, I understand a business has to respond to public relations. This was also around the time where social media was becoming particularly powerful, and therefore yeah. it felt like you needed to respond to a backlash and kind of an onrush of people getting frustrated. That appears to have changed a little bit, specifically with the Watson situation, in that they're, they're trying to split the baby, as they tend to do. They say, like, well, listen... There's no charges, but still for the good of the league, they try to find out some sort of suspension. But obviously everybody knows it's not going to be that much of a suspension because everyone is desperately trying to get him to play for them. So they know he's not not going to be gone for too long. The Bauer situation is interesting in that they're incentivized the other way. Like I I know that the Dodgers need pitching. I'm not sure the Dodgers feel that they need pitching bad enough that they need to fight for Trevor Bauer. And Trevor Bauer certainly does himself no favors, not just with his tweet. Like, hey, congratulations to Sean Watson. I would have taken a a break off of that one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, like, here's, and also, like, again, the lawsuit that he's put up against the athletic and Molly Knight. Shout out to the great Molly Knight, by the way, who writes a wonderful newsletter called The Long Game, actually. They are unaffiliated, that we would be honored to be affiliated with the great Molly Knight. The lawsuit appears to be basically just, just trying to hurt Molly Knight. Like, like it's a very typical Trevor Bauer sort of thing. It's not something you win. It's not something he could expect to win, but it's something he can hurt her in the public eye, which, hey, sounds like something that Trevor Bauer would do. And so the idea is that, like, I, I don't want to give credit to MLB for the Dodgers, because listen, they're going to have to make a decision on Bauer soon. And the, the thing that's really different about Bauer than what's generally the case in a lot of these things is he's going to fight whatever suspension Major League Baseball gives him. You don't see that all the time. With Marcelo Zuna last year, generally speaking, when these things have come up in baseball, the player... They'll take whatever suspension from baseball they have to do. Bauer's going to fight it. Bauer's going to fight it, which is going to be an ugly situation for baseball. And what's interesting is it almost feels like with Watson, he kind of knows that he isn't going to have to fight it because he knows he's going to get less than he probably could have from the NFL. And I think that's what's interesting about this. The difference to me between Watson and Bauer is not so much how much their teams need them, though I think there's something to that, or even the, the degree of the offenses itself. But everything that Bauer does makes the Dodgers be more and more like, you know what, we probably should have not signed you that contract in the first place. Even if you're still a good pitcher, which at this point, who knows? It's been more than a year. Right. <laughs> and so it's been more than a year. And things were looking a little bit shaky anyway after the comments about the sticky stuff on exactly. the baseballs. No question. But I think that speaks to another aspect of this. Dodgers don't get any credit for, at all for wherever they land on Bauer. Because if Bauer is pitching like DeGrom, I'm going to bet the Dodgers figure out a way, figure this out some way, even if they have to block his Twitter account somehow. And I think Bauer probably knows that, which is probably one of the reasons that he's lashing out and being uh, generally kind of the ass that he is right now. And so it is an ugly situation. And I think that you, you touch on something really important there, which is there's only so much they can do. I don't want to make that let them off the hook. The, the, you know what I'd love the, for them to stop doing? To stop saying, 
oh, well, we take these very seriously. We have a value. <laughs> we, we have to protect the shield, right? right. The, these things are against our league's core values. I didn't believe it when they were talking about black head coaches, and I don't believe it now. <laughs> it, it's just something right. that you say to try to get out of the situation. But I would argue by them doing that, it makes everyone hold them to an accountability that I'm not necessarily sure they're physically capable of doing. If you want to just say, this is just a football thing, whatever the law says, fine, then take the heat of having someone who's an asshole right. uh, be on your team. But they don't want to do that either. They want to say, no, we stand for these core values, and you, they get in these messages every single time. I think also when it comes to these two cases in particular, I don't, shouldn't use the word cases that insinuates yeah. there's still a criminal investigation going on, but these two situations, one is supported by visuals, Right. There are pictures, there are text messages, and the other, I think because there aren't any visuals, you can sort of fudge it a little bit. Oh, we don't really know. And why did they go to the house? You can try to like find ways to play the benefit of the doubt or the devil's advocate when it comes to Deshaun. Whereas Trevor, there's like stuff you can read and there's pictures and there's admission that something occurred. And Deshaun had admission, too, and he's couched as it was consensual. Trevor, it's muddy, right? Because he's not just bringing in aspects of misogyny and really some horrific behavior, but it's also all couched through the prism or through the lens of sexual proclivities and freakiness, if you will, and fetishes. And that whole thing makes people uncomfortable anyway. You know, having those kind of discussions about What's our kink, if you will? And how do you judge another person's kink? And I'm not here to judge anyone's kink because Lord knows I don't want you judging mine. But I think because of the nature of the conversations, there's just a hesitation to even want to talk about it beyond the initial fact of this is what happened, this is what he accused of, and this is where we are. Whereas for Deshaun, because there's not the visual aspect really attached to it, you are able to have sort of these detached conversations because there's nothing visual to hold you accountable for your thoughts or to challenge your thoughts. And I think that's also fueling the two different tracks that these two athletes are on. You know, where Deshaun looks as if, for the most part, he's going to get to play and make a shitload of money and maybe even fool you into thinking that they have a chance to win the Super Bowl. Ha-ha, <laughs> but we know they don't because they're Cleveland. Yes. Whereas Trevor... What he has are these text exchanges and these pictures and these these depositions. And he's hoping that despite all of this, you'll come to the conclusion that he did nothing wrong. And that is just two consensually adults engaging in a you know some kinkiness and that it's got blown out of proportion. And that's just is uncomfortable and possibly not even true. Yeah, it's an ugly situation. I, th- I put it this way. I know the baseball season is about to start and the NFL season does not start until September. I bet we see Deshaun Watson on the football field before we see Trevor Bauer on the baseball field. That's my official prediction agree. on this. There's a good chance we'll see Albert Pujols still a base before we see Trevor Bauer on the... Well, I think that's, <laughs> that's true, but only on the back half of a double steal. <laughs> Okay, Will, it's time for This Week in Sports History, where we break down an event from the past through the lens of 2022. I can tell you this, Kenny. The depth of this kid's preparation for this stage, for this moment, just runs so deep. There's no doubt in my mind he's very aware of 
the significance of this putt in terms of the tournament scoring record. Well, I know one thing. I'm 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 glad I was here to watch it. I know there's a lot of people feel the same way. I just enjoy watching great golf and it means so much to see someone like this handle himself this way and but hard to believe 21 years old this for the record there it is a win for the ages you just heard 21 year old tiger woods thrilling the sports world almost 25 years ago as he claimed golf's greatest prize the Masters, becoming the youngest major winner ever and the first player of Asian or African heritage to win one as well. Woods absolutely annihilated the field. His 12-stroke margin of victory was the largest in a major tournament in the 20th century and second only to old Tom Morris's 13-shot win in the 1862 British Open. I don't remember seeing that on television. I have yeah, to take your word for it. Yeah, old Tom Morris. I, I don't know who that is, but I know exactly what that guy looks like. <laughs> I know exactly. And for some reason, I know what he was drinking, yeah, too. Yeah, I know what he was know drinking, why. yes. I, 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 bet, I bet if he were to be transposed to today's society, he'd be found somewhat problematic. That's my general official theory about <laughs> Probab- old Tom Morris. Probably. <laughs> Something about saying Masters over and over again and old Tom Morris just uh, makes yeah, me uncomfortable. Anyway. Yeah, I totally understand. <laughs> But what might be the most amazing accomplishment of them all? 44 million people watched the final round. Such was Tiger Mania at the time. He's 46 now, and it's unclear if Tiger will ever be able to compete again because of the leg injuries he suffered in a car accident over a year ago. But will, looking back on that amazing time in 1997, I'm struck by how rarely we've seen an athlete capture the media the way that Tiger did. If this breakthrough moment happened today, do you think it would be covered any differently than it was back then? I would argue that sports are different now in a lot of ways because not only Tiger had that moment, but really what happened to Tiger over the next 25 years. It's not only that Tiger beat old Tom Morris's record or came close to old Tom Morris's record. It's that he was dominant about it and seemed so unflappable seemed unfazed really by all of it. You know, the whole idea of golf, those that love golf, the thing that they will tell you about golf is while it might not be as physically taxing as other sports, it is somehow mentally crushing. You have to have this incredible focus. You have to be able to overcome adversity. You have to be able to handle everybody staring you. The focus that you have to have, the pressure of the sport. I would argue other sports have that exact same thing, but also more running. But whatever, (laughs) that that, that would be what golf people would claim. And certainly to see how Tiger handled that situation, he made it look like the easiest thing in the world. Uh, You always heard he was wise beyond his years and how mature he was. And it led to him becoming this sort of like corporate spokesperson for wealthy uh, corporate America for the next 15, 20 years was all based on that idea, not just as Tiger great, but he can take it. He can take it. He can take whatever you put on him and you can handle it. It is now very clear that Tiger Woods was, in fact, under an immense amount of pressure and clearly needed outlets that were not healthy for him and have ultimately kind of broken him down. At the time, it looked like, wow, this is the best golfer we've ever seen. He's going to fly past Jack Nicholas's records. This is incredible. He's going to inspire a whole generation of, of young black kids to embrace golf. That's, that's gonna, that, 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 I do Child. not believe that that happened. I do know the people who were claiming that, however, were not, from my experience, not black people. <laughs> Those Man. were not the ones making that argument. If that's not the biggest, Obama's black and he's president, so racism is an overstatement ever. <laughs> 
but that was that was the thing. People thought Tiger Woods was meant to be this unifying figure who was going to dominate the sport and could take all of it. And we put everything on him. The sport certainly put everything on. Corporate America put everything on him, and he clearly cracked. Like, listen, Tiger had this accident. It appears we don't know a lot of information about it, but it is the second major car accident that he has had. We have had instances where he has been under the influence. We've had instances where there's clearly been a lot of things gone wrong. And generally still, what are we talking about the Masters this week? It's not, is Tiger ready? Are we sure we're ready for Tiger to do this? He's been through so much. The question is, oh, is Tiger going to play? Is Tiger going to play? We're going to get Tiger. And I would argue that is all a result of this notion, partly Tiger's fault, by the way, on this, that he can take anything that everything's fine, that everything's okay, when clearly things aren't. And if you contrast that to, say, Simone Biles or some of the other young athletes we've seen now who talk about, you know what, this is really hard. This is a ton of pressure to put on me. This is wearing me out. I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle this. You've got the top tennis player in the world retiring at the top of her game. There's an honesty, and I think part of that is an understanding of, I can't be Tiger Woods. I don't want to be Tiger Woods. I don't want to be that person that pretends that everything is fine because it's not fine because look what happened to him. So I'd like to think that today a Tiger Woods would be covered differently simply because Tiger Woods existed and we saw what happened to him. I don't know if that would be the case, but I'd like to pretend it would be the case. I love the fact that you started talking about his humanity first, because I think out of all the things that are different in the way that the media responds to athletes of that caliber, recognizing emotion and the psychological toll of the sport and mental health and self-care. There are new concepts for our culture in general and for this industry specifically. And Tiger may have benefited from some of that wisdom that has happened since he won that first Masters in terms of the way that we cover these athletes. Because you're right, there was always this belief that a 21, 22, 23-year-old person was fully evolved and could handle having an entire industry be built around his back with this false narrative that he's going to bring in a whole other collection of people who had never considered the sport before. It was a lot. And, you know, he did the best that he could, you know, under any circumstances. I've been very critical of him in terms of his lack of willingness to embrace his identity or even talk about his identity in any substantive way. But over time, I've come to accept the possibility that maybe he's never done that work to embrace his full identity. And so it's unfair to ask him to do something for others in a larger conversation that he hasn't actually done with and for himself. I would argue that part of the reason why Golf didn't see a total influx of black kids in particular wanting to pick up golf clubs and become like him was because he didn't appear to embrace that aspect of society. And he certainly didn't look like he was someone who was fucking with black kids in a very substantive way, the way the NBA players are always in, you know, in the streets, in the communities, giving back and being there among them. I'm reminded of the fact that Muhammad Ali, you know, never really left his neighborhood and his community. And despite becoming a global icon, he never seemed to have left home base, whereas Tiger Woods' home base was assumed by people because of the way that he looked. And then expectations were heaped on him based upon assumptions. 
and that he was never actually a big part of the narrative being created around him, but was expected to maintain the authenticity of that narrative because it seemed to be a really good marketing ploy or a really good way of trying to grow the audience without actually asking yourself, is this something that's important to the athlete? And if so, in what capacity? So, you know, I, I think we're smarter as an industry now than where we were back then. I joked about Obama, but I think the election of President Obama mm-hmm. and subsequently what's happening politically in this country highlights that, that just because you have representation doesn't mean you have equity and inclusion. They got the D part, you got diversity, <laughs> right. but there's the E and the I that corporate America always forgets about and sometimes sports also forgets about as well. You know, it's like, we got Mike Tomlin. Yeah, but do you have equity and inclusion yeah. or do you just have one black head coach? And when it comes to golf, it's like, yeah, you have one black golfer that you've elevated and embraced. But is that equity and inclusion in terms of everything that you think that golfer represents? I would argue no. And we have more thoughtful leaders like Howard Bryant and Jamel Hill and Carrie Champion. I can go on and on and on. You know, yourself, of course, Dave Zirin. Like, there's so many columnists and, and and journalists out there now who are able to have these more nuanced conversations so that we don't make stupid ass assumptions that, hey, there's a black golfer. That means black people are taking over golf now. <laughs> I was in college when he won in 97. I was about to graduate, actually. And it was incredible. Like, it was incredible. Like, I, I don't care about golf at all. And I watched every second of that and loved it. There was something about this young, seemingly guileless player oh he got struck by the gods the gods said you're the greatest golfer in the world go be the greatest (laughs) golfer and it's exciting right anytime you see a young talent like that you're like holy cow i don't know what it is that made this but this is incredible to watch he already had that incredible smile that made you want to like follow behind him and get excited by him i remember loving it and when i go back and look at it now it just makes me sad it yeah. really makes me sad knowing what happened to Tiger. And listen, he's okay. I don't mean to imply that like, yeah. I was going to say, nothing really happened to him except for life. I know. It's true. It's true. But like, I guess that's true. I guess that's dudes true. Dudes cheat on their wives yeah. all the time. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. wives cheat yeah. on their dudes too. I want to make sure yeah. I'm being equitable. Tiger Woods is now is what 25 years does to someone in that moment of complete optimism, excitement, and altruism. And it's done that to me too. <laughs> so I guess that makes us think about all the politicians yeah. who start by campaigning for their favorite political, you know, and grassroots yeah. leaders and all that stuff. And then like after 20 years of being in public service, you either live long enough to be unelected yeah. or you live long enough to become the enemy. <laughs> You are, you are talking to someone that once voted for John Edwards in a primary. So, oh, my yes, God. Uh, I, I believe in him, too. Him. Yeah. And he turned yeah. out to be a complete and utter yes. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's one. I'd like to maybe have that one back. If I oh, listen. We could do a whole podcast uh, on the ones I want to get back. Oh, boy. If Tiger plays this weekend, I'm totally going to watch the Masters. If he doesn't, I'm totally not going to. It's <laughs> frankly as simple as that. And there's probably millions of other people like <laughs> Okay, LZ, let's move on to our listener questions, which Megan, our favorite producer, has been compiling during the show. Megan, so glad to have you back. What do you have for us? We have one question from Roz116. They say, can we talk about Dawn Saley for a bit? She's the anti-Coach K, and her approach is so refreshing. Does South Carolina's victory over UConn signal a changing of the guard in women's college basketball? Take it away. 
That is a great question. First of all, Will, you have yet to acknowledge that I picked the women's Final Four champion. You did. I still believe if North Carolina State would have beaten Connecticut in that Elite Eight game, that great double overtime game, my champion would have made it. It's also, as she talked about Don Staley being the anti-Coach K, I actually kind of feel like Ariema is the Coach K of women's college basketball. <laughs> and it's like fun to kind of, like he's not quite as obnoxious as Coach K, but he's close. You look at Don Staley and you wonder like, Wait, why would any young, awesome, cool women's college basketball player go play for Ariema over her? She looks fantastic. It looks like completely in charge. They asked her in a press conference, does it intimidate you that Connecticut's 11-0 going in the national championship games? And she's like, no, because they're going to be 11-1. And it's like, oh, that is just, that is, that's what you want, right? Particularly college sports. We see this in all sports. There's an evolution of how coaches are in these sports. There was a time where all college coaches were like Bob Knight. And now there is no one like Bob Knight. There was a, a time in the NBA where all coaches were like Phil Jackson or tried to be like Phil Jackson. That is not the case anymore. The NFL, it was all a bit Lombardi. I think there is a movement away from people like Ariema and more to people like Don Staley. And I would argue that's a very positive change. It's not just that South Carolina won uh, on, on Sunday night. It's that they pretty much dominated the game. And that's the sort of thing, as right as college, women's college basketball is at kind of a pivot moment and having more success than ever, it does feel to me like a potential little bit of a change uh, moving forward. I love the fact that when you watch her coaching, particularly the offensive sets and the schemes that she has in place. It reminds me of the NBA. It looks like she's running NBA plays out there. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I don't like comparing the two sports, women's basketball and men's basketball, but because we are exposed to so much men's basketball and have been for decades and decades and decades, it's a natural way to kind of look and just go, oh, this looks like that. And particularly during this run, I wonder if part of the appeal is that because she is younger than Gino and she seems to be more current game player slash NBA adjacent than Gino, that that is also a factor. Like she plays a brand of ball that we find entertaining regardless of gender. You know, the ball movement, the corner threes. It was a beautiful thing to, to really watch. And then that suffocating defense, sweet Jesus, they just had no answer for it. So I think the style of play, as much as her identity, is also intriguing because it looks like the style of play that we're all watching year round because of the NBA. And to a certain degree, the WNBA, but certainly the NBA with the three ball action and the ball movement and the way they communicate. Like it was, it was a thing of beauty. And I do wonder... Because typically what happens when you have a college head coach begin to have this sort of level of success, they start getting mentioned as coaching candidates for other schools, sometimes even the pros. I think this would be really interesting to see if she continues on this path of success, if she becomes that breakthrough hire, if she becomes what we thought Becky was going to be, Becky Hammond, if she finally is the one who gets yanked from the women's basketball game in the college level and an NBA team seriously considers hiring her because she has done nothing, Will, but fucking win. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, can I mean, we she, just talk about that for a second? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. she just wins as a player, 
as an assistant, as a head, she wins. And so I keep asking myself, what would be the reasons why a team that has struggled to find a good head coach wouldn't consider this head coach that always wins? And it just seems like you can't get past the fact that it's gender. That if there was a dude who had just gotten South Carolina its second national championship and had beaten a legacy school to do it, and, and was talking shit on the way to doing it. <laughs> and that dude had won Olympic gold medals and championships as a player before they started doing it as a coach. Will, do you honestly believe the NBA would ignore that dude? <laughs> Literally, Naismith player of the year, Naismith coach of the year. <laughs> WNBA all-time team. The sport's generally been solved. <laughs> like, she's solved mean, it. She's figured I mean, it out. <laughs> I, I'm not trying to push for any agenda. I'm not trying to be woke or asleep. I'm not I trying understand. to be any of that shit. Listen, Brad Stevens lost. <laughs> That's true. And he Twice. was sought after. Twice. <laughs> and that motherfucker wasn't balling. He didn't win no gold medals and shit as a player. <laughs> it just seems to me that if Don Staley was Doug Staley, <laughs> he would be the next coach of the Lakers or some shit. But, you know, we're limited in terms of vocabulary and how we deal with it and address it. Well, the Lakers look like they are going to need a coach soon, LZ. I so, mean, uh, start lobbying. Start lobbying. If you're asking me if it's going to be Frank or if it's going to be Westbrook, Frank's a lot easier going. to move, man. Yeah, I to, say, <laughs> to say the very least. Also, last thing before we close, we're going to go – I have not had a chance to talk about Coach K losing. Oh, that's right. Four games. Didn't get a chance to talk go. about that yet. Hate watch, just hate so, watch, hate watch, hate watch. I'm just saying, Coach K, just a little message for Coach K. I just want you to know, I don't want you to feel bad about the loss, even though it happened in the worst possible way it could have possibly happened. And also, the school that you love and have dedicated your life to, your rival is going to mock you for what just happened to you for ever and they will have every single right to i mean uh, you lost your final home game and you got booted out by your rival i'm pretty sure coach k uh, does not want to end his career getting beaten twice in front of everyone by carolina <laughs> I, I i feel very bad for whatever piece of furniture in the Shashevsky household that he has been kicking or beating since this happened. That I guarantee you that's happened. Remember, remember when he lost at home to North Carolina? He was so mad. He, he was so mad. There was been. no like glory in the moment. And again, this is almost a reason to almost admire him, right? The fact that he takes this so intense yep. and like there is no joy. I'm reminded a little bit of actually one of the best moments in winning time is Red Arbach talking about like, no, the thing is, is you have to be miserable. Like that's what makes you win <laughs> is you have to be miserable enjoying that. That this was funny. <laughs> enjoying this is what makes you lose you can't enjoy it at all the fact that coach k was miserable this entire time even when he was winning and then his career ended like this oh boy uh, at least he got to a final four smile and enjoy it that's basically what i'm trying to say because if you're going to be miserable anyway and you're probably going to lose anyway just try to enjoy Try to enjoy. Try to enjoy. And that's our show for this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Long Game with LZ and Leach. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. The Long Game is produced by Pierre Bienname, Megan Burney, Mark Levine, and Marshall Eisen. Music is by Gloria Tells, with some sound design by David Wilson. We'll be back with another podcast 
next Wednesday, I hope to be wearing different clothes then than I am right now. At least smell better. Can't guarantee that, but I hope I will be wearing different clothes then than I am right now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.